If you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. And while you're finding that, um, just once again, we want to welcome anyone who is new here today, you and your family, if you're here by yourself, we welcome you to the Dwelling Place Church. Our vision here is we exist to love people how God loves people. And our mission is to be a place where God and man can dwell together. And we pray that that is your experience today. Our goal is to be like humble servants, to display God to our world. Amen? And so Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, it reads, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, John the Baptist for clarity, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? I'm going to read that one more time. John asked him, or sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. Now look at what Jesus says. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news, the gospel, is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Amen. I want to subject our time and conversation of the expectation gap. Tell that to your neighbor, the expectation gap. Now, before you see it, greet someone, take this time to just welcome someone, let them know that you're also glad to be in their company, praise God. Let's just take this time to meet and greet one another in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And then after that, you can make your way to your seat. Amen. Once again, I want to title our time and conversation under this theme, The Expectation Gap. Um, we'll begin with some participation. All I need is a show of hands or not. Has anyone heard of this concept, this idea, or this term? It's an actual term, so I want, I'm asking it in that context. Have you heard of the actual term? The expectation gap. Raise your hand. Wonderful. No one. Oh, there we go. <laughs> That's okay. This is not terrible. Um, the expectation gap. Now, show of hands for everyone who has never heard of this. 
Everyone else, this is where we all now raise our hands. That's okay. I actually did come across this official term, so to say, just a couple of years ago. Um, not because I've done extensive research about it or not even because I'm in the field where the term got created, but just coming across it several years ago was very, very interesting. And so I just want to introduce it to you in a very, uh, uh, very uh, superficial, I'll say that, in a superficial way. We're not going deep into it, uh, but it'll be enough for us to comprehend what the expectation gap is, and from there, we're going to use that to help us make an application with the text that we read. Does that make sense? So we're going to learn what the expectation gap is, and then we're going to use that and make application with the text that we read. So what is the expectation gap? Well, believe it or not, it actually comes from uh, the space in the field of financing. And what it has to do, it tries to address the concerns and the crisis, pay attention, between what the public expects auditors to do and the gap between what auditors actually do. And so once again, The public, the people have an understanding and have expectation of what auditors do, but then there's a gap between the responsibilities and what auditors actually do. It's actually called the audit expectation gap, and we have it on the screens here, Uh, and I just want to show you this. If you were to research this, you will find that there's actually three components to this chart. And the purpose of the chart is to how can they bridge that gap where one group of people have an expectation of what others are supposed to be doing, but the responsibility of what that other group is supposed to be doing is not in line with their expectation. This will be called the expectation gap. Now, I found this interesting because we can take this same application and use it to apply to the text that we've read, and we can actually then take it and apply it to ourselves. And what do I mean by that? Well, in the text that we read, uh, might have been familiar to some of us. It might not be familiar to us. But the text that we read, when you're reading it, if you notice, we were in Matthew chapter 11. So again, I, 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 I had us open up our Bibles, and we just began reading. But it is chapter 11, so according to the Gospel of Matthew, a lot has happened. At least 10 chapters have happened. But last week, if you recall, and if you weren't here, I preached from a, from a theme, a light has dawned. And we spoke about how Jesus, as he comes into the world, as he comes into his ministry, The gospel's writers address it from the perspective that there was darkness during the time, and here comes Jesus as the light. As a matter of fact, last week we explored how the gospel's writers described Jesus. The gospel of John particularly said, the light has come into the world, and that world was in darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it, but he came to be a light and to bring light to all men. 
And so Jesus metaphorically is described as, look, light stepping into darkness. And that's a good way to understand it because then that can, tr- that can help us when we understand what is happening when I accept Christ? What is happening when I accept Jesus? What is happening when I trust the Lord as my Savior? One way to describe it is light coming into my darkness. Amen? It's an acknowledgement that I'm either walking in darkness, I've been in darkness. And if we're honest, if we're honest, we would actually confess I have been the means of darkness at certain times. Amen. So last week we explored this theme of, look, a light has dawned. And this is good news. This is part of the gospel message that those that once walked in darkness, behold, now light has come. And the world at the coming of Jesus has an opportunity to live in the light of God. We're not trapped. We're not bound. We're not stuck. Look, we're not destined. The world is not condemned and stuck in darkness. Have you ever looked around? Even today, let's jump forward. Have you ever looked to your present time and said, man, there's darkness. Show of hands, participation today. There's darkness. Well, the good news is this, that Jesus has come to be the light. It would be terrible news if it was never announced that light has come. Then every day you and I will wake up and just look in our world or turn on the news and say, man, it's getting dark and it's getting dark fast and there's nothing that could be done. That would be a terrible state for humanity to be existing in. That look, that darkness is spreading and darkness is growing, but there's no hope and there's no answer and there's no solution. This is the good news of the gospel that light has come. And so if light has come, then there can be hope. And more than hope, there can be change. That which is in the shadows can be illuminated by the truth of the light. So this is good news. So there is a hope. So when we sit today in our world and we look at it and says, man, what's the phrase? Is going to hell in a basket. We should also be comfortable to say, but there's a light that has come to this world. And Jesus spoke about this light. And you know what's so fascinating? Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are the light of the world. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. wait. I'm, I'm glad I got the good news that Jesus is the light of the world. But in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he calls us to be the light of the world and says, you are going to be a city. And, 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 and that city is going to be placed on a hill for everyone to see. And he said, you don't take a light and put it under the table. You take a light and you take a lamp and you put it on it. It's like, wait a minute. I'm, I'm glad and I'm, it's good news to hear, God, that you got this as the light. But Jesus introduces accountability and says this. No, now you that have me and have embraced that light, you now have a responsibility to shine too. So that means then when, you, when the light dawns, it's not just for us to sit back, kick up our feet, and be like, shine, Jesus, shine. I wonder how many of us kind of, without realizing it, or not even intentionally, this expectation was created in our head that when the light has dawned and when Jesus is the light, then that means I get to sit back and watch the show. 
Like, get the popcorn out, get your, you know, get your comfy blanket and, you know, you know, press play and see what God does as he waves his magical hand over the earth. Jesus says, no. I am the light. I am the source of the light. But now we get to sit with him. We get to partner with him. And then we get to be participants of demonstrating that light. I remember when that reality hit me, I was like, oh, that means I got to do something. Then I realized, whoa, there was an expectation gap in my head. I thought that because Jesus was the light, that he was the only one responsible to shine that light. The gap that existed was that I didn't know that I would be responsible to stewarding the light of Jesus to the world. What a gap. What a gap. Because when I live with believing that only Jesus has a responsibility to shine bright, and then I look at my world and it's really dark, what does that create? That creates a frustration because now I'm sitting like, but Jesus is the light, but nothing's happening. Jesus is the light, but no one's being saved. Jesus is the light, but no one's coming to him. And the reason why is because there was a gap. There was an expectation gap. I failed to realize that Jesus was the light, but I needed to participate in his mission. And I had to live as light for people to hear the message. And I had to share that message in order for people to hear it. Something needed to take place to fill in the gap. Because if that gap doesn't get filled in, then you know what fills it? Frustration. How many of us right now are frustrated, frustrated, and, not, and we don't even realize it. We are frustrated because we believe God is supposed to be doing something. And we haven't learned what God actually does. We believe in him. The light has dawned. He's come. He's the good news. We don't even realize that a lot of our frustration is coming from what we expect God to do versus what he actually does. And so, right, we looked at the audit. Let's put the audit expectation gap up one more time. This is what it was. What the public thinks auditors do versus what auditors, what auditors actually do. And this created a crisis. The public thought, this is your responsibility. This is what you're supposed to be doing. But the auditors were on the other side said, we were never going to do that. This is what we actually do. And so this became a crisis. This became a crisis between the public and the auditors. And so the expectation gap was, term was created to show this, but how to fix it. And so now let's use this as a model to help us and let's look at the expectation gap that many of us have. Look, who believe in God? Those who trust God. It's what I believe God will do. 
versus what God actually does. And this is a real place for many of us. Now, what's beautiful about the Dwelling Place Church is we will say this confidently. God is doing something right now. Show of hands, class participation. Raise your hand if you truly believe. Not just raise your hand to, you know, like as a, you believe that God is doing something at the Dwelling Place Church. How many of you, keep your hand up, if you're praying that God continues to do at the Dwelling Place Church? How many of you have even fasted about what God is doing at the Dwelling Place Church? How many people have, no, we just know, amen, praise God. So here's the question for all of us. What do we believe God is supposed to do? Because we're in a season where many of us are fired up. Like, we can smell it. It's like, God's... He's doing something, man. Smell it. Like, like you can smell it in the spirit. Like, you know, there's no denial. Just, I've heard people literally say they just drove into the parking lot and knew something was happening. And, and I know that sounds funny and, and, and maybe I, I made light of it. I don't want to make light of it. But we can literally feel that God's not going to do something. I'm glad we're actually using the language now that God is doing something. Because there, there was a long season where it's like, God's going to do something at TDP. God's going to, God's going to, God's going to. I'm glad at least we moved into the season that we know that God is doing something. God's working. God's in our midst. God is leading us. God is lifting us up. We're in action. So praise God. But here's the thing. With all of that, right, that fire, that passion, and, and what usually happens when God does something, we don't want to jump off of that. We want to stay on it. And, and in many ways, that's right. You want to stay on that. The question is, what do we expect God to do? Or what do we believe God is supposed to be doing? Versus what God actually wills to do. What I believe God should do versus what God actually wants to do. This sometimes is the very tension that we live with. We just didn't know to identify. We didn't know the expectation gap was real. And today I want to tell you, church, it is real. It is real. This is, could be the frustration in our prayers. Praying, expecting God to do something, but frustrated when it doesn't happen. The expectation gap. What we believe God is supposed to do versus what God actually wants to do. That's real church. And the text that we read is all about this. We read from Matthew chapter 11 and we get introduced. And what do we open up with? That John the Baptist is in prison? Wait a minute. When did that happen? How did that happen? Why is John the Baptist in prison? Now, if you've been reading your Bibles or, or if you were with us on our journey last week, we got introduced to John the Baptist and he was nowhere near prison. Where was he? Does anyone recall? He was out in the wilderness filled with the Spirit of God, proclaiming the good news message, preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that there's one coming after him whose shoe sandals he's not worthy to untie. When John the Baptist sees him, you remember this from last week, John the Baptist said what when he saw Jesus coming? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away what? The sins of the world. 
So last time we checked, where was John? He was in ministry. You could say he was in prophetic ministry. And so he was out in the public. And the, and, and, and the, and the gospel tells us this, that people heard that message and they received it. And so what ends up happening? As people are hearing the message, repent for the kingdom of, at, is at hand, they are repenting. And the Bible tells us this, that John is baptizing them as they're repenting of their sins in the Jordan River. And what is John really doing? He's, he's announcing, John the Baptist is announcing that the light is coming. The light is coming. And it's getting, and, and it's close, and it's near. So repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what does this mean, the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Is John making this up? No, John knows the voice of the prophets. John knows the prophetic words that have been spoken. Look about the messianic king that will come and establish his reign and his rule. This is what our Bible is about. This is what your Old Testament is about. Trust me, don't throw out your Old Testament. Don't you dare do that. Don't you dare do that. Many of us miss the beauty of things that are being said in the New Testament and have no idea that they're coming. They're, they're, they're echoes of the Old Testament prophets' voices speaking specifically about Christ Jesus. And so John the Baptist didn't fall out from the sky and got his own sermon he wants to preach. Neither did Jesus just fall out the sky like Superman coming to save the day. No, they were spoken about in the voice of the prophets. And so, as a matter of fact, when John starts his ministry, check this out. The religious leaders, the elites, the people who are in control, the people and, you know, the priests and the, uh, the, the, the Pharisees and religious leaders, when they see John the Baptist preaching, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, their raiders go off and they're like, who is this guy? You want to know why they want to question John the Baptist? Because they know what he's trying to say. When he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Jewish people, because of their history and because of their writings that they preserve and because of the words of the prophets, were awaiting a Messiah to come. Okay? They were, they were waiting for it. And this Messiah, as promised by the Lord Yahweh, was going to come from the line of David. And it was promised that this one would shepherd his people, he would bring peace, but he would also bring a day when he would pour out his spirit, according to Joel and the prophet Ezekiel, he would pour out his spirit, but there would also be a day of the Lord. And if you've been following along in our Bible study, the prophets introduced this day of the Lord. What is this day of the Lord all about? It's about when, look, the messianic reign comes in and Yahweh sits on his throne through the Messiah. And when God establishes his reign and rule on earth, that cannot happen without justice taking place. Why? Because there's so much darkness in the world. And the Messiah is going to deal with darkness. How does the Messiah deal with darkness? He needs to bring a light. But what the light needs to do is expose that which is in the dark, and then he needs to bring righteous judgment. And so you know what the prophets are saying? The prophets are saying, this day of the Lord, man, when this thing comes, sure, yes, 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 Yahweh is going to pour out his spirit, but he's also, look at this, he's also going to pour out the judgment of his fire, his fire against unrighteousness, his fire against injustices. His, look, his, his, his fire is going to be poured out on the workers of iniquity. 
It's like, wait a minute, I just thought the Messiah was going to come and, 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 and make everything right. You can't make everything right without addressing the wrong. And so when the Messiah comes, yes, he's going to establish his rule. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring healing. He's going to bring forgiveness. He's going to bring restoration. All of that's going to take place, but that can't take place unless you deal with the wickedness. And so now the day of the Lord look, gets collected with, yes, peace coming, but also righteous judgment. All right, you got that? This is what the prophets say. So now look, John the Baptist is out there saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now you got all the religious leaders saying, what, you're announcing? You're, wait, wait, wait. Are, are you daring to announce right now? Are you trying to say this is the time when all of these things are going to come together? And so what they do is they send men out to John the Baptist to question him, say, who are you? And the questions are this, are, are, are you announcing that the kingdom of heaven is here and near because you're claiming that you're the Messiah? And you know what John the Baptist is? He is honest. He says, nope, I'm not him. Don't get it twisted. And then they ask him, are you a prophet in the gospel of John? He even says, no, I'm not. Even though he's like prophet 2.0, he says, no, I'm not. And you know how he describes himself? He describes himself by quoting the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah said, make the path straight. Prepare the way. Because why? The Lord will come. The Lord will come. Don't get it twisted. It might seem delayed. It might like seem like nothing's happened. It might seem that darkness is conquering at the time of Isaiah. But rest, be rest assured. The word of the Lord is this. The Lord will come. So when they ask John the Baptist, so if you're not him and you're not a prophet, then who are you? He says, I am the one that Isaiah spoke about that's out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way. Make the path straight for the Lord is coming. That's why I'm here just to announce. I'm here just to say that the Messiah is coming, so be ready. And then he calls him out. He tells them that they have no fruit in their lives. And so John the Baptist, look, he's very bold. I wonder how many of us would go to the street corner and just shout, repent. <laughs> or how many of us would go to Walmart and in the middle of Walmart just say, none of you guys have fruit righteousness. There are those who dare. I hope they're going in the spirit that the Lord is sending them. But this was the spirit that John the Baptist indeed was going with. Look, John the Baptist is not just quoting prophets. But the spirit of the Lord is fulfilling the words of Yahweh through the pro of the prophets through the life of John. And so John the Baptist, look, he's a herald. And so look, he announces that the light is going to dawn. So what does he say? He says he's not the Messiah. He's just fulfilling. He's the one that the prophet Isaiah spoke about who would announce to make the path straight because the Lord is coming. And then he says this. I baptize with water. He goes, but the one coming after me, speaking of the Messiah, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what is John the Baptist saying? He's calling on those words of Joel. He's calling on those words of Ezekiel. He will baptize you with the Spirit. And then he says, and with 
fire. But now he's not talking about fire. Yeah, we love God. I'm fired up for the Lord. No, no, no. You got to remember he's calling on the voice of the prophets. Now he's calling on the words of Micah. He's calling on the words of Amos. He's calling on what? The prophets that spoke about that fire would come on that day to bring righteous judgment. He says, I'm baptizing you with water, but when this one comes, there's going to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which the prophet spoke about, but there's also going to be the baptism of fire when he judges. And then he says this, just so you're like, no, Pastor, I think you got that wrong. No, I know I got this one right. Right after that, he says this. You know what? He's got his fork in his hand, which was a tool where you separate a wheat from shaft, and he literally says the fork is in his hand, and he's going to separate the wheat that is good, and he's going to bring it to the barn, and basically those that go into the barn get the Holy Spirit, but then after that, the, the, the fork is going to separate the shaft, which is the, the portion that you don't want from that, and he's going to put that and throw it into everlasting fire for judgment. He says, yeah, this is, this is what's going to happen when the, when the light dawns. And so, now look, look at John the Baptist, okay. There is going to be a poor of his spirit, but then there has to be this righteous judgment where the wrongs are made right. And look, evildoers, right, and those that are wrong, those that are, right, walking opposed to the Lord and against his will, what's going to happen? They will experience wrath of God, judgment of God. Okay. This is, this is John the Baptist. It's important. So what does this mean? This, this tells us, too, that John has expectations of what Jesus is supposed to do. He's not making them up. He is calling on the voices of the prophets to bring this message together, and that's what creates the expectation. So pour out of the Spirit and, 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 and righteous judgment. So how does John end up in prison? Well, we just talked about how he was very bold. He would call those who ever gathered to repent and be baptized, when the religious leaders came and he knew that they weren't right, he, he called them out for not having fruit of the Spirit. But John the Baptist also was not scared to go against, remember, we talked about this last week, the, Rome, the Roman power that was, that was over the Jewish people. Remember, the Jewish people, right, when you open up your Bibles, they're living under the hand of the Roman Empire, Okay? But John the Baptist was also not afraid to call out the injustices or the moral failures of Rome. And so if you don't know why John the Baptist is in prison, well, it's because John the Baptist was brave enough to speak to Herod. Now, who was Herod? Herod was the supreme ruler for Rome, ruling over the region of Galilee. Okay? Is it? Herod was his name, this is his title. Now, why did John speak against him? Well, history tells us and our Bibles tell us this. So there's a collaboration there. The Bibles are not making this up. We know this is true. Herod was married, but then he disgracefully, look, divorced his wife, and then he seduced his brother's wife, Philip Herod, so that she could leave his brother and be in relationship with him, and she, and she did. He allured her, and she came. 
And so John the Baptist is, is not silent about his scandalous relationship. Now, he doesn't serve Yahweh, but it doesn't matter. John knows this is wrong. And so he, he basically spoke against Herod and against all these other things that he wasn't doing right. And so what did we learn last week? If Rome is over you, all right, there's an exchange here. You submit to them, you pay taxes and tribute, they protect you. But if you, look, come against Rome, then what did I say last week? What is Rome going to do? They're going to run you over. Now, Herod also knew that there was a large crowd that was supporting and following John, but he wanted to kill him, but he didn't dare. And so what he does then, he just puts him in prison so he doesn't have to hear John screaming or publicly calling him out for his moral failures. And this is how John gets in prison. Now, when we get to Matthew chapter 11, it tells us this, that John, while he's in prison, he sends his disciples to Jesus and to ask a question. And I just want to remind you of uh, verse 3. The question is this. Now, I want you, before we read the question, I want you to think of everything we just laid as foundation about what John believes about the light that has come, what John has said about the land that has come, what John knows that the prophets has said, and I want to remind you of the expectation that John has, okay? Now John's in prison, and now look what he's asking his disciples to ask Jesus. Verse 3, here's the question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Whoa, you and I are supposed to be, wait a minute, what happened? John now is in a position where he's doubting who Jesus is. And he's, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are, are you the one? Wait a minute, John, you were just the one who told all the crowds that Jesus was the one. It's like, does he have amnesia? Did, did, did when they throw him in prison, did his head hit the back of the cell? And now he's got confused and he doesn't remember. He doesn't remember that when he saw Jesus, he saw him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He says, are you the one or should we expect someone else? What has happened to John? Did when he get in prison, they beat him up and they rock him over his head that he doesn't remember that when he was baptizing Jesus, he saw the heavens tear up and the spirit come down like a dove and he heard the voice say, this is my beloved son and I'm well pleased. What happened to John? Did he just forget because he had a crack over the head? He says, should we expect another Today, church, I want to suggest to you that the reason why John now is questioning, is Jesus really the one meaning, are you the Messiah, when he announced him as such, that the reason why John is saying, should we expect someone else, I want to suggest to you because there's an expectation gap between what John the Baptist believes Jesus should be doing and the gap is what Jesus is actually doing. But what would create that gap if John the Baptist was so sure of him? 
Well, I, I think the thing that creates the gap in John is the same thing that really creates the gap in us, even when we believe in God. I have, I, I put my faith in Jesus when I was 17, year old, 17 years old for myself. And, and, and I felt him come into my life, and I began this journey with him. And, and, and look, God and Jesus became very real to me. But I also know that I have gone through stuff where I have, looked, I have expected Jesus or God to respond to my personal life in a certain way. And when that did not happen, it left me frustrated to the point that then I questioned, are you really God? Have you ever been there? Look, God, are you really there? And so if we don't, we don't figure out this expectation gap, if we don't learn, look, how to bridge the gap, then it could be very possible that we could be those that believe in God, believe in Jesus, but live a life full of frustration because why? We expected God to do something or that God is supposed to do this, and this is God's job in my life. And then the reality, that's not what God is going to do. That's not even what God wills to do, and that's not God's job. But he's God. It should all be his job. He's God. He should respond to me in this way. What causes these gaps? That's a really good question. What causes this gap between us expecting God to do one thing, but that's not what God signed up to do? It's not what he wills to do. So, so okay, so, okay, let's talk about it with, with John, and then we'll, we'll move on to some things that, that I really want to be helpful for us to help us. How do we close this gap? Well, for John the Baptist was this. He asked the question, are you really the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you, are you the one who I believed you were? Or should I expect, or should we expect someone else? Why is he questioning? Well, now because John is personally in a, in a tough situation. He announced him as, you know, this is the Messiah, this is the one. Look, he announced him as the one that's going to bring the spirit. And also, look, he's going to bring the fire. And that's important to understand here. Why, what, it's important to understand John, John's understanding of the fire. Remember, it's about when righteous judgment comes and, look, makes wrongs right and deals with the workers of iniquity, deals, look, with oppressors, deals with those who, what, use injustice, deals with those that are morally wrong. So there's a problem now with John's expectation and where he's at. John's expecting that when Jesus comes, he's going to also deal with everyone that's Rome in Jerusalem, everyone who's wrong with the religious leaders that he called out. But John also has the expectation that Jesus is then going to deal with the Roman Empire. But now he's at the mercy of the Roman Empire, and Jesus ain't doing nothing about it. Listen, when Rome puts you in prison, it's... Basically, it's a slow death. This is why you read about people visiting people while they were in prison. This is why he's able to send his disciples because they, there's no uh, meals at, you know, lunchtime in, in, in Rome's prison. You get put in there, and if they don't let you out for whatever reason, you're in there to just slowly die. There's no time in the yard. There's no cards. There's no... 
hoops out there. There's no, there's no lunch. There's no shower time. You're just in there. And if someone doesn't go and visit you and bring you food, you will starve to death in a Roman, in a Roman prison. And now this is where John's at. And he's wondering, if I'm here and Jesus is going to bring the spirit and he's going to bring the fire, where is the fire that gets me out? Where is the fire that consumes Herod? I know he's wrong according to Yahweh's law. Herod's wrong. This is wrong. He's, he's in a scandalous relationship. He's doing wrong things. Where is the fire? Are you the one? Did I, did I get it wrong? Did, was I expect? Where is the fire that brings the righteous judgment for the wrong? I don't belong in here. And so now look at this. John is living in an experience that is different than the expectation that he had of what Jesus was going to do. And so now he's in this place of frustration and doubt. Now show of hands one more time. Have you ever been there? Where you truly believe that God is supposed to do something, but now you're frustrated because it hasn't happened. And if you don't wrestle or deal with that or get help with that, that could literally bring people to doubting. Jesus, are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? I know what it is to be there. And so what happens? Jesus actually responds. Let's read the response one more time. What does Jesus say? Jesus tells John's disciples, go back and, 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 and you tell him what you see in here. Because you, you, John's locked up in prison, and Jesus has been on the move, and Jesus has been doing stuff. The problem is that John hasn't seen Jesus. Jesus is not doing something for him personally. Oh, how many of us doubt God because of what he's not doing in our lives personally, and then we discount that God is doing everything else that God's doing? Oh, this happens to us all the time. Many times our moments of doubt and our belief in God all have to do with what he's not doing in our life. And that, that frustration blinds us to see every other thing that God is doing in everyone else's life and in the world and in our children and in our heart. God answers every prayer. I wonder if that means when, God's, when they say God's got it, that means you'll never be sick. I wonder if that means to them that God's got it, that don't worry, they're always going to get healed. I wonder if they mean that God's got it. That means that the relationship will always turn around. I wonder if that means that God's got it, that you're going to pay every bill. What is our expectation of what we think God's got or what God's going to do versus what God actually wills to do? And this is important. Why? Because check this out. What you believe that God is supposed to do is what will shape your prayers. It'll shape your intimate moments with God. And how tragic would it be that we spend all this time with God expecting him to do a trick that he never signed up to do? So many people frustrated with their faith. I wonder how, look, I wonder how bad us church leaders and us pastors created certain expectations Expectations that God never created 
for himself to do. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't do nothing, but usually, look, usually that, that gap and that, that frustration kicks in based upon what he's not doing in our lives personally. So look at this. Where's John? Everybody should. Where's John? He is in prison. Where's Jesus? He, he's out. And what is he doing? He tells John's disciples, go back and tell John this. Look at this. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus? He's reassuring to John, hey, man, I know you're frustrated over your expectations of what I should be doing for you personally right now, but I want you to know that I am the one. There's no need to expect another. I am moving. He's, and, and Jesus is moving and doing according to the Father's leading. And, and, and look at the tension here. There are those who are out there who are hurting, that are poor, that are broken. There are those that are blind. There are those that are lame. There are those that have leprosy. There are those that are deaf. There are those that are dead. There are those that are in darkness. And look, and Jesus is responding to all that. He's healing. He's raising. He's preaching the good news. But John's situation is not changing. And therefore now John is questioning who God is. You want to know something? John never gets out of prison. Eventually, Herod calls for John. And he's beheaded. He doesn't get out of prison. Things don't get better for him. We know Paul and Silas got out of prison, and that's a good song to sing. Some of them, sometimes you do get out of prison. The question is, what happens if you don't? What happens when you don't? What happens when you get your guitar in prison and you start singing, and then you start singing about the walls of Jericho, and you start singing, when we shout, walls come down? What happens when they don't? That, that, I think that's an important question to explore, because most of us are not frustrated about what God's doing out there. We're frustrated what he's not doing in here. This is John's frustration. I'm in prison. Jesus, you're not here yet. Come get me out. And Jesus responds, I'm doing something but right now, you've expected something that I didn't necessarily promise I would do. What's important, for, look, what's important in Jesus' mind that John understands? What's important in Jesus' mind that John understands is not that he's going to get him out, but that he is who he is, regardless if he ever gets out. Oh, how does that change? Can't that start to fill the gap already, I hope that already starts to fill the gap for some of us. We actually need to sit down and think of what are our expectations of God. Now, I'm not telling you not to have faith. I want to actually walk you through that in, 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 in a few minutes. But I wonder how many of the masses, our frustrations with God, all have to do what we believe he's supposed to be doing versus what he wills to do. And so, all right, now we're going to move from John just 
And we'll move quickly and let's look at some other examples. So what happens? John does get beheaded, and Jesus continues his ministry. Look, John's dead. He never got out, but Jesus was still who he was. This means that my, my life does matter, but all of the rest of humanity's lives ma- matters too. This is good to let us know that, 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 that heaven doesn't revolve around one person. Jesus did not die for one person's sins, though he did so die for your personal sins. But he died for, for the whole world that if they would trust him, that blood would cover them too. But heaven is not revolving around one individual. And please do not expect heaven or God to flip everyone's life upside down to accommodate. (laughs) I had to learn that. I cannot expect for God to turn your life around, your life around, your life around, move you, pull you, bring you, get rid of you, just so my my life feels perfect before before God. Nope. God, take this one out to church, bring this one in, get rid of these people. I'll rather get, can I do a trade-off here? Is the trade deadline still open in heaven? Can I get some, can I, you know, I'm willing to trade this leader for two of those over there. Like, God is not, God, God is not going to flip everyone else's world upside down so that I could just be at peace with my world that's working around me. I would say there's a gap in the expectation, and we need to fill it. So what happens? Jesus goes, and, 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 and his ministry is reaching more people. And, 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 and Jesus, look, has also invited people to walk closer and more intimately with him. And there's a lot of people walking more intimate, but he's got this 12. He's got this 12. And after some time in ministry where uh, Jesus has through his word and his deeds, has, has shown and is trying to show and demonstrate that he is the, the Messiah, excuse me. He is the one that they've been waiting for. He then gets alone with his disciples, and then he asks his disciples, all right, uh, now at this point, this stage in, in, in my ministry and in my life, uh, who, who are men saying that I am? And then his, his disciples respond. Some say that you're a prophet. Some say you're this prophet back from the dead. And then Jesus says, okay, the, the real important question, I want to ask you, who do you say that I am? He, he wants to know how much have they learned him. He wants to know how much have they been listening. Look, not just seeing his miracles, but how much they've been listening to his words. Both are important. We got to be able to acknowledge the deeds of God, the sign and wonder of God, but we also have to be able to never detach that from the words of God and his instruction. So now after he's done a lot of words and a lot of signs and wonders, now he asks the question, who do you say that I am? And then Peter gets up and he responds, in a powerful, a powerful way, uh, and, and, and Jesus basically validates his, his, his response and validates it to the point that the Spirit had to give that to him. Jesus, uh, Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. So now look, what is Peter doing? He's, he's, assuring, he's assuring what John the Baptist was trying to say. But John the Baptist had a certain expectation. It didn't come through, and it challenged his faith. Now Peter gets up, and he says, you 
are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, wow, man, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. In other words, other people didn't believe that to you. They're saying that I'm some prophet from the dead. They're not getting it, but you got it, you got it. And then Jesus says the beautiful statement, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not what prevail against it. Awesome, awesome. Then right after that, Jesus says, all right, guys, we got to make our way back to Jerusalem because I got to go and die. And you know what happens to Peter? Peter finds himself like John. Wait, wait a minute. Peter over here says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. But that comes with expectation. The expectation that the Messiah, what? He, same, same, same that John believes, right? It's going to bring in the messianic reign. He's going to bring in the rule. Justice will be, be but the Messiah needs to live in order for this to happen. And now Jesus is saying, yep, that's right. I am the Messiah. I'm glad that you know that, but I need to die. And so now where's Peter? Peter's caught now frustrated and in the tension because he's like, wait a minute. What good is a dead Messiah? And what we end up reading is this. Peter took him to the side. Great. Okay, you're going to die. Jesus, can I have a word with you real quickly? Okay. Okay. I rebuke you, Jesus. Um, uh, um, this will never happen. You, you, you're not going to die. This will never happen. Uh, I say no. The expectations are if you're the Messiah, you live and you make wrong right and you bring peace. Look at his expectation. And he says, yes, yeah, so I rebuke you, Jesus. And then Jesus said, uh-huh, no, I rebuke you. Get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Look, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So this is so crazy because Peter knows Jesus, is in a relationship with him, but his expectation is it's, it's being rocked with a big gap because the Messiah needs to live on. And Jesus saying, no, the Messiah needs to die first. And so here we go, we have another person who's in relationship with Jesus, expects Jesus to do this, but that's not what Jesus wills to do. How many of us, maybe even right now, are sitting with expectations of what Jesus and God and the Spirit need to do for us, and maybe it's very possible that the, the reason why that's not happening is because that's not what Jesus wills to do, and that's not what God wills to do. So how do we, how do we fill the gap? How do we fill the gap? But what was interesting, when Jesus says this, that, that, that he needs to go and he needs to die, was not the first time that Jesus said it. This is the third time now that Jesus has told that to them. The first two times, they didn't say nothing. It's almost like he said it and it just went over their heads. They didn't even register it. But now, look at this, now that Peter has a revelation of who Christ is, it goes to show us that immediately, even when we get beautiful revelations of God, we got to make sure that false expectations are not clinging on to the beautiful revelation. Oh, I think that, that could be like a book chapter or something. I don't know in what book, but that could be. Where make sure that when you receive a revelation of Christ or what God is doing, that you do not assume false expectation together with that revelation. And so Jesus has to look. He has to rebuke him. Now, in the audit expectation gap, the portion that, that, that shows 
what the public expect auditors to do versus the thing that creates the gap, that what auditors' job actually is to do, they call that portion. Remember I tell you, I just showed you a, 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 you know, a small portion of that chart? But that section right there is called the knowledge gap. The reason why there's that gap, the reason why there's this discontent, the reason why there's frustration, all has to do with knowledge. The public think auditors do this, and, and they haven't been informed properly of the task. I mean, the public think, yeah, the public, the public believes that auditors do this, and, 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 and the auditors are like, we were never going to do that. And that's called the knowledge gap. And so how do you begin to fill that gap? Look. The auditors have to make known their will, and the, the public have to be ready to receive that will so that then what? That closes the gap. And once it closes the gap, it closes the frustration, it closes the mistrust, it closes the doubt in the auditors. The same is true here. Why is Peter frustrated or why is Peter having this moment where he feels that he can rebuke Jesus? It's because, look, he's failing in knowledge of what the mission of Christ actually is. He too, like John the Baptist, knows what the prophets said. And so based upon the language of the prophets, he, they, they, he created this expectation. That mean, that, and this is expectation. If Messiah comes to rule, then he can never die. And now Jesus is saying, in order for Messiah to rule and to bring healing and to bring restoration and to bring true forgiveness, Messiah does have to die. And so how do we fix this gap? But what would it take? It would take for the disciples, it would take for Peter, it would take for the rest, John and all of them, to continue to seek Jesus and look, to listen closely to his words, not just watch his hand. And really the only way for them, look, to know what his will was, was to lean into him. Lean into him. Look, personally just know him more. Personally talk to him about his own words. Lean. So oftentimes the frustrating gap between my expectations of God and my experiences with him can only start to be filled in my pursuit to know him more. And so look, when I, when, when I go to expect to know him more, look, then I will start to discover more of his will. But look, if I just believe in God but don't pursue to know him, I'm never going to expect according to that will. Then, 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 it, then we leave it to my own brain and my own emotions to create what God is supposed to do in my life. But if I look, if I, if I pursue him more, then I get to know him more. Then when I go expect, I expect according to will, not according to what I like or hope for. So that's the first thing. We have to expect according to his will. Take a picture of that. Later on, the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Colossae in Colossians chapter 3. Look what he says this. Paul says this to this church. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, and indeed they were, what does he tell them? Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. What is the Apostle Paul encouraging these Christians to do? Pursue to know him. 
Pursue Christ. Pursue where Christ is at. Look, and you got to pursue. Look, he's trying to get them to change their mind from this, from, from this earthly, human way of thinking about things. And look, pursue that which is above. Look where Christ is seated. Look, set your minds where? On things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is now hidden, what? With Christ and God. What did Jesus tell Peter? He said, you're a stumbling block to me. Why? Because he does not have in mind, look, the concerns of God, the things that are above, but he has his mind on human matters, things below. And now the Apostle Paul is telling the same thing to the church of uh, the Colossian church. You got to set your mind on things above. You got to pursue the Lord. This can't just be you go to church, hopefully they sing good, and hopefully I get prayed for and get a miracle and go home, and then I can tell everybody that Jesus healed me and he does all these great things. Then you know what? Their expectation is just they're going to come in and get a healing, get a miracle, go back and tell someone else. But nobody's knowing God. They're knowing his hand, but not knowing his heart. And what tends to happen to us, we do got a testimony about how God touched us, but we don't have any character. We don't understand the plan of God. We don't understand the purpose of God. We don't know that we're supposed to be the light. And so we got all these crazy expectations that were created with a, because of a lack of knowledge. So that gap can only be filled. And that's a knowledge gap there, man. What I think God is supposed to do versus what God actually does. What I think God, what, what I think matters to Jesus the most and what really matters to Jesus the most. First John chapter 5, the apostle John will write this. He says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. Now, this is interesting. He says, this is the confidence we have. Your confidence, he's, basically he's going to tell you, when, when, when you approach God, this is where your confidence should come from. Look, look, look. That if we ask anything according to his what? His will. The confidence that you and I have when we go to God comes from that we are asking according to his will. But you can only pray or ask or come to God according to his will if you learn that will. If you never learn the will of God, if you never pursue Jesus and learn God's heart, then you will pray about all things and some of them can all miss his will. So the confidence comes that we have prayed according to his will. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Why? Because it's on the confidence, it's on the premise that I asked according to his will. Look, if there is something that's in the will of God and I go to pray, I am now becoming a partner of what God wants to do. If I pray according to my own will, then I'm asking God to be a slave to my agenda. I'm asking him to leave his heavenly, to leave his own wisdom, to leave his own counsel. I'm asking him to settle for less and to answer and to do what I want because of my expectation. That's what happens when I pray out of the will of God. Now, I'm not telling you not to have faith. And so sometimes what's also true, now pay attention, in right context, sometimes what's also true is that the, the gap between my expectation and my experience with God, sometimes, too, that gap can only be filled by faith. And this is another dimension, and it's important that you see. While Jesus is going out there, healing, 
and, and, and moving and the dead are being raised and eyes are seen and the ears are opening. And yes, it is true. John never gets out of prison, only comes out to get beheaded. While, while, while those things are true, we do see this in Scripture, and it's, and it's beautiful. There were times where Jesus, when he went to do something, and someone made a request, they came to him, right? They're, they're coming to him. Jesus wanted to validate their confidence in him. That was important to Jesus too. What do I mean that Jesus wanted to validate their confidence in them? Well, let's just read uh, a passage of scripture. Matthew 9, verse 27 to 30. It says, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. That's a direct claim to the messianic reign. So these people have heard the message. There's expectation. It says, when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they replied, yes, Lord. And it says, then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, don't tell nobody else about this. And so what, they're blind. What was their expectation? That they would be healed. What did Jesus want to confirm? Did they believe? Some of us too, the reason why we're frustrated is because when we're praying, we actually pray, but we don't have any faith. We just pray because we know this is the guy that you go to, but not because we actually believe that he can. And so this is not the only occasion about this. Pastor Daniel preached about a sermon called A Faith That Could Be Seen, and it was about when these four men dropped their friend in front of Jesus to get them into Jesus' space. And, the, and we literally read that when Jesus saw their faith, he told, the, blind, he told the, the, the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven, and eventually he told them, take up your bed and walk. There was a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, and no one could help her, but she pursued, she pressed, and she touched his garment. And, 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 and Jesus' virtue flowed from it, and, and she was healed. And Jesus said, according to your faith, that was done, man. And then we also learned that Jesus, when he went back to his hometown in Nazareth, it says that he could only heal a little bit of people. Why? Because of their unbelief, they did not have faith. There was a man who had a son. His son was being tormented grievously by an unclean spirit. And then he cried out to Jesus. He said, if you can do anything. And Jesus said, pause, if I can do anything, do you believe? And then the man said, I believe Jesus, help my unbelief. And so we see this thing in scripture that part that, that, that part of us, look, landing in the expectation of God, when we do have the right expectations, is that we do have faith. And so sometimes maybe you're in here and you're like, well, my problem is not that I'm not praying according to his will. Well, the next question is, are you praying with actual faith? Do you believe that he can? And so you expect with faith the last thing. And sometimes we just got to expect no's. Wait a minute, but that sounds contradictory, Pastor. You just told me to pray with faith, but then you also told me I got to expect no's. A couple of weeks ago, some young man came up to me, someone who I love, and this person says, hey, Pastor, you know, um, talking about their, their life and how they, you know, uh, this person definitely seeks for God to, you know, to guide them. And so this person was just sharing an opportunity um, that could kind of change, you know, what they were doing. And they just wanted to share that with, with, with me. And so naturally, sometimes, I do this. And I realize, I, I realize how much I did this. And I'm like, man, had some regrets. That usually when someone says, hey, pastor, I'm praying for this to happen, usually I just do this. Hey, man, I pray that that comes through. Right? Someone brings something say, hey, I'm, I'm really praying about this. Hey, I pray that, you know, I pray. Hey, pastor, I'm really praying for this job. I pray God gives you that job. I'm in agreement with you, brother. 
hey, pastor, you know, we're praying for our home. We're trying to purchase a home. And usually we're like, hey, man, I'm going to stand with you. Are you fasting? We'll fast with you a day for your home. Praying. Usually that's it. But this brother came up to me, and I believe I, it was a revelation, a revelation that probably was long overdue, one that smacked me in the back of my head. As he says, hey, pastor, this is what I'm praying for. When I went to say, awesome, brother, I'm praying that that, 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 that works out for you. What came out of my mouth was this. Brother, I pray that that's God's will. He opens the door, but I pray if it's not God's will, that he slams it in your face. I felt the Holy Spirit like, like slam that in me. And then he looked at me and said, Pastor, I received that. And I remember saying, man, 14 years too late. Look, sometimes we just start to agree, and I'm going to say, I'm going to say this first, and then I'm going to tell you why. Sometimes we just start to agree with people, never one, you know, never being okay with, never being okay with, you know, or, or never safeguarding with, hey, Lord, this is what's really in my heart. I don't want to pray out of your will. I want to be in your will, Lord. And so I want people to come pray with me. I'm trying to discern your will in prayer but Lord, I'm okay. I believe you can, but I'm okay if it's a no because you know better. And so, interesting enough, it doesn't take long for that brother to see me say, hey, pastor, man, with a smile on his face, hey, pastor, man, just about that opportunity, it didn't work out. Usually when people say that, they got tears in their eyes. Usually they're frustrated. They don't know what to do. They feel lost. They, they're, they're wrestling. Their faith sometimes is rocked, and now they're doubting if God was there and if he heard. This brother had a smile on his face, and he said, thank you for telling me that. I knew when that didn't open that I, that, that was God, that God was closing the door, and I thank you for praying. So he, and then he said, because if you didn't pray that and it didn't work out, I don't know what I would have thought. So when I say expect to no, know, I'm not saying that you don't pray in faith. But what I'm saying is leave room for God to know best. Look, you can still pray in faith that God's going to do it. But you trust if it doesn't happen that the no is still an answer from God. And that might help us because how many times we pray and things don't go how we pray. So sometimes we got to expect no's from God. In James chapter 4, James talks about this whole situation where he's like, you know where, where, where problems and conflicts and fights come, come from? <laughs> he says, those stuff really stem from your, from your basically your, your, your lustful and wrong passions and desires, man. <laughs> then he says, you know, you guys, you guys actually desire to have stuff, but, 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 but you don't have because... You, you, you're, you're striving to get these things, and most of the time you're striving from wrong passions. And so the passion is wrong, the action is wrong, and, and, and more than likely the attitude is wrong. Look, you got expectations, but you're going all about them the wrong way. And so, look, you want, but you don't have. You have expectations, but you never experience it. James would go on to tell these people, he says, you do not have because you, you don't ask. Some of us have expectations, but we never even present them to the Lord. We just start acting on them. 
But then he goes on to say in, in James 4, verse 3, he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly so you can spend it on your own passion. If we're honest, some of, the, some of the expectations of God, if we really sat with ourselves, we would learn, wow, this is just a selfish request. This is just selfish. It's coming out of self-indulgence and self-satisfaction. And Look, this prayer is coming, look, out of all that I want, regardless of how much it inconveniences the world around me. You ask, but you pray with wrong motives. Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. He says, for you were once darkness. So for all of us here filled with these, you know, we wrestle with our passions and our desires. Hear this. I was once darkness. But look what Ephesians says. But now you are light in the Lord. Whoa. Look, when when my passions and my lusts and my selfishness wants to, I got to tell myself, I was once darkness. Now I'm light in the Lord. Look, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then he says, find out what pleases the Lord. This needs to be our pursuit. This needs to be our journey. Not that we just sing loud. Not that we just worship loud. Not just that we have a lot of services. If our pursuit is just to come together and worship, and our pursuit is not to find out what pleases God, then it's very possible that even in our work, even in our prayers, even in our shouting, we don't know the will of God. Some of us don't have faith, and some of us don't know what it is to hear no from God. And then we did all of that. Some of us leave church more frustrated because we expected God to do something, and he didn't dance. Some of us leave church with less faith because I thought this was what God wanted to do. And we didn't realize that God never willed to do that. Now, there are times when we're going to pray and we're not going to understand why something happens. And I want to acknowledge that. Where it seems so unfair. And there's not a verse that can help you. There's There's not a sermon you can turn on. What has happened has devastated you. And what probably devastated you more is that you had faith that God was going to turn it around. Job, the book of Job gives us insight and it's beautiful. And Job chapter 1 loses everything and the Bible tells us, man, he was righteous and he was just before the Lord. But he gets to a point where he loses everything. He's told, just curse God and die. And then Job says... Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now when Job says that, it's not because he understands. It's not because it feels good. Job's, Job's hurting. Now in the end, when you read, God turned everything around in the end and blessed him in a, in, 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 in a profound way. And, and, and there's a sermon in that, but there's a sermon in naked I came in, naked I leave. What do you do when you expected God to answer and he didn't? And, 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 and it's at the point, you can't put more faith into it. It's at the point where you don't understand God's will. You're sitting with a no towards your prayer for God to do something. How do you fill that gap? Today I want to leave you with this. Sometimes that gap between what I expected God to do versus the experience I have with him not doing can only be filled 
with trusting that the Lord truly is sovereign. And what does that mean? There will possibly be moments that we will all experience in our life where we will never get an answer to why and it won't make sense. And the questions remain, but you still want to believe in God. How do you fill that gap? You fill it with trusting that the Lord is sovereign. What does that mean? That he reigns and he rules from a place so outside, so above. And then I just trust, I trust that he is still in control. And I trust that he is still good, even when my expectation came crumbly down. That's what John the Baptist had to believe till the end, that Jesus was who he was, and so that Messiah would be sovereign. And John would experience his faith with that being the only thing that could fill the gap in his faith, that the Lord is sovereign. Amen? Let me pray for you. You could just stay seated. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the grace of today. We thank you for your word, Lord. Father, I pray for every person in here, Lord. If there's someone here that does not know you, Lord, may today they have heard your gospel, the gospel of your blood being shed, your death on a cross, Lord, and your saving power, Lord. Father, may they know that they resurrect, that you resurrected so that they can have a resurrection too, Lord, experience a new life, new faith, so that the light can dawn, Lord. But once that light dawns, Lord, Father, I pray that them and all of us continue in our pursuit to know you, Lord to pursue you, Lord God, to discover you, that every day is a journey with you, Lord, a day of following you, picking up our cross, Lord, and walking behind you, learning from you, growing with you, Lord. Through intimate time, Lord, through prayer, through meditation and reading of your word, Lord, through worship and congregating with the church, Lord, may all of that, Lord, feed the journey of knowing you so we can discover your will so that, Lord, when we expect, Lord, we expect according to your will, Lord. May we also, Lord God, for those that are wrestling with their faith to believe, Lord, may our faith be stirred up and may we expect with faith today, Lord. And Father, I pray, Lord God, for those that when we pray and expect with faith, Lord God, that when your answer is no, Lord, we still rejoice in the confidence, Lord, that you have answered, Lord, but you answered from your goodness and you answered from your higher perspective. But today I also pray for those that are hurting, that the no, Lord, was devastating and, tra- and, and, and rocked their life and turned it upside down and has left them with pain and suffering, Lord. Father, fill that gap today with the understanding that you are sovereign, that you are good, Lord, and that you will, Lord, Father, at the right time, make all things right, Lord, and that we will continue to trust in all that your word says, Lord. So, Father, I thank you for this time. I pray blessing over the Dwelling Place Church, the families, the individuals, the children, Lord. Be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.